0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Today, I'm hosting a special roundtable in association with Vestra. The idea is to discuss public spaces. We've gathered together some amazing people from across the UK. Chris Brown from Igloo, Olaide Obo from First Base, Romy Rawlings from Vestra, Jonathan Wilson from Situ. Yemi Aladaran from Islington and Shoreditch Housing Association, and Paul King from Lendley's. We're focusing on how to create public spaces that are climate resilient and also promote the kind of social connection we're seeking post-COVID. After a little bit of playtime with some kinetic sand as we each created our own ideal public space, this is the discussion we had afterwards. I hope you enjoy it. I think the question is you know in our in our commitment to create the the importance of creating democratic and sustainable places post covid has has the post covid emphasis kind of derailed and overtaken the climate emergency is that something that you're staying are you managing to stay focused on 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 climate change and and uh, or or you know has the emphasis on public space merely been heightened are we still focused on net zero? Um, I see some uh, nodding. So I'm going to go to Neil first, because he's nodding. Um,
1: <clears throat> Neil Murphy, uh, co-founding director of town. Um, I, I, I think that, I mean, it's early days, but I think that the um, all the signs are that the things that we should be doing to humanize and democratize our public spaces post-COVID are pretty, pretty similar. And if anything, amplify the things that we ought to have been doing. Um, to To tackle the the, the climate emergency, and you know, I think they both pull in the same direction. Um, I mean, what I hope, um, although I, I'm not sure yet, is that actually it will bring a little bit more urgency and immediacy for a lot of people. Because I think the problem we've had all along is that for a lot of people, the the climate emergency is not front and center of, of mind. Um, it feels uh, it feels far off, and I think that you know anything we can do to cat- capitalise on the opportunity that. Of, of this being sort of in, in everybody's brains and everybody's lives um, and, uh, you know, people thinking a little bit more actively about how to remake society up to a point, um, you know, that, that's actually a good thing. So, you know, I, I see a lot of synergy myself.
0: Yeah, me, I'm going to ping to you. I'd be interested to hear in terms of housing, um, whether that focus remains on the climate emergency and the emphasis on public space.
2: Yeah, me, a lot run Architect and um, major projects manager at um, Islington and Shoreditch Housing Association. I think there is um, there is a big focus now on um, climate change and sustainability, especially working at a smaller HA. But uh, um, often um, it, it's very difficult for you to take the first step and take risks in terms of costs and trying for example new out new technologies Um, but it's um fantastic in the sense that we're now being forced to so we when we look at the um up and coming gla new funding um round it is mandated <laughs> that there's certain um, principles that we have to follow, including you know, achieving um, net zero um, in order to, to get funding. So actually it's fantastic to see that there is um, a push from powers outside um, the um, organizations, which means that there absolutely does now have to be a focus on trying to achieve um, you know uh, more sustainable buildings but also I think um over the course of the last year and especially with um COVID there's been a big focus now on people and the hu- human aspects of things and how we bring people together and um stakeholder engagement and putting people center uh, uh, making people the center of all that we do so I think they're both coming together now um at the same time, and we're all trying to work at these things um, together. So I, I, I think that's quite fantastic.
0: Olaida, um, in terms of d- democracy as well, um, you know, creating these spaces, democratic, as well as that focus on the climate emergency, do you want to comment on what you're seeing?
3: Olida Oboe, I'm Director of Partnerships at First Space. I find that word really interesting because it's something, is a word that I use quite a lot. I think creating civic and democratic spaces within our town centres is crucial. Our town centres are places where people used to come to, there were always democratic places, but I think over time they've almost become mono use. They've become a place where people just come to do one thing. And I think, what we noticed during during COVID is actually a lot of people who typically wouldn't use their town centres or their high streets or that, you know, the main focus of the area had started to come back into those spaces. And it, we almost went back to that idea of having creating real democratic spaces that everyone's allowed to come into equality of access, you know, equality of just finding out and bumping into things. So I think it's a really important word and it's, it's a word that really guides us in terms of how we create spaces. I think the other thing that we've learned out of COVID is that people are the most important part of our our communities. And I think if you take that people-centred approach, you have no choice but to take climate change and and sustainability are really important because, you know, we are are the biggest issues and we are the ones who are causing the most harm to our planet. So we have to make much more drastic um, changes rather than trying to skirt around the edges and, uh, you know, forget about it. And I think also importantly, people from a development perspective are now voting with their feet. So people are saying, I will not work, I will not live in a place that doesn't align with my personal, um, you know, my personal values around climate change and sustainability. So whether we like it or not, our customers, whether they are living there, working there, visiting there, are starting to, you know, starting to take a values um, approach in terms of the, their decision making which will impact on our on our bottom line so we have to we we have to take it seriously as well.
0: Chris you work in some very deprived neighborhoods do you see the same emphasis on on public space democratic public space and on sustainability?
4: Chris Brown the Regeneration uh, we're an ethical property developer working in deprived neighbourhoods in the top 20 cities around the country. My experience of the last 12 months or so has been kind of the COVID lit a spark of mutual aid um, and, you know, lots of people in our team, me included, uh, have been helping our neighbours, particularly, you know, starting in first lockdown. And then that's kind of morphed in the in the gaps between the waves of COVID into, in, in my neighbourhood at least, into um, very much kind of green activities. So um new organisation got set up here um, doing things like community gardens. A hundred years ago in my neighbourhood, a wonderful woman called Ada Salter uh, Greened the entire neighborhood which was which was then the most horrendous slums, um, planted seven thousand street trees, ten thousand tulips, window boxes all over the place, so we commemorated that we planted ten thousand tulips and um, so there's 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 those two sides, the mutual aid, the people, the community, with the green um, and I think it's been really helpful that COP26 is coming along on the heels of, of COVID. Um, Paul and I are, um, I always get this wrong, Paul, built environment climate ambassadors to COP26. And so we've, we've got these this, this extra kickstart. The COVID has really kickstarted the people bit. COP26 is really kickstarting the environmental piece. Uh, and I think laid over that is, Kate Rayworth and and donor economics and the idea of providing for society's needs within within the planet's limits, and and that that's become my world. And maybe I'm weird and I'm the odd one out, but I'm seeing a lot of people doing similar things, and and our our local street has become the most incredible. Um, social space because people aren't indoors in the old social spaces they're now out on the street and the best thing to do in an evening round here is just to go and sit somewhere on a street corner and watch life it's fantastic.
0: Jonathan I'm gonna ping over to you now do you want to share about these ideas of democratic space that kind of are we still focused on on sustainability and net zero and what kind of places you think are um, helpful to bring people together?
5: Sure, um, Jonathan Wilson, Development Director of um, Situ. Um, I think my my perspective has been really clear. Um, sort of post COVID, during COVID, we 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 really have spent the last um, six or seven years designing places that were um, reacting, preparing, responding to the climate emergency. Um, and when when we look at those ingredients of what 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 we what our perspective was on how to to tackle that at a sort of place scale, it was it was about removing barriers. So you get to know your neighbour again. Um, and what I mean by that is the fence <laughs> that usually surrounds people's homes that is this horrible physical barrier to people um, and. Uh, I think something that something no, no one has yet mentioned, I think, is just the remarkable removal of the car being the most important object in most people's lives over COVID. Um, so many people forgot about their car um, that that was, in, in lots of cases, just so important. And I think um, with some of the uh, restrictions put in place, it meant it meant that the car was yeah, completely unneeded for months on end. Um, so again, we, we design our places to remove the car being the most important focal point from outside your 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 window of your home. Um, and then I think the um, the, the, the I think was what what Chris um, alluded to mentioned about about that 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 community, yeah, you know, bringing communities genuinely back together. Um, I at the beginning of COVID. Over a year ago, moved into our show home um, on our on our sites because I was intrigued to see how our developing community in our climate innovation district in Leeds actually actually used the spaces that we created, and um, in lots of ways, our agenda and our our design principles ethos um, really got understood over COVID. And I guess the the challenge now is is about sustaining that and. N- you know, making people um, think differently about how they live. Um, we're we're very much based in cities, so how they live in the city. You know, we um, we COVID COVID helped people in the particularly Leeds understand what we're doing. Um, and the value of what we're doing and, and actually strangely without it we'd still be probably trying to explain why it's important not to have a fence and not to have a car outside the front of your house um and um that getting to know your neighbor is is okay it's 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 not going to hurt you so I think the um, I think what we need to do now is we need to capitalize on that and and cities at city scale people need to be um, Yeah, making sure these great new behaviours and um, opportunities don't go away.
0: Paul, I'm going to bring you in now. Uh, I'd really like to hear about um, your your perspective on the. You can pick up on some of the points that people have raised. But, uh, you know, this this idea of um, have we been derailed at all in terms of seeking those democratic, sustainable places? What's changed um, and what do you think is important?
6: Sure. Um, hi, I'm Paul King, uh, and I head up sustainability and social impact for Lendlease um, across Europe. Um, I mean, I agree very much with what others have said. I, I see um, some real sort of synergies in terms of the way in which we um, need to respond to the pandemic and and the way that we need to tackle climate change and and resilience to inevitable climate change um, going forward. Um, I think it's implicit in what, what a number of people have already said that. Obviously, we know that the the impacts of the pandemic have been very, very unequal. Um, You know, some of us have actually been exceedingly lucky. Um, And and for me personally, there have been many sort of silver linings in terms of what impact it's had on my life in lockdown uh, with my family and and, and in my home. But but clearly, that is um, far from many people's reality. And of course, we know that to be the case with climate change as well, excuse me. you know, climate change is going to be very unequal in its, in its impacts um, and it's going to hit uh, those people uh, who are the most vulnerable hardest um, in different parts of the world, but even in our own country. Um, and, and I think that is, is a very powerful uh, thing that, that, that we're increasingly aware of. I, I think the pandemic has made people more uh, empathetic to um, other people's reality. It's brought out some of the best um, in people. Uh, as Chris has, and others have said. Um, and I think it's also made people think about the future that we want in a way that we don't normally do. It's made people pause, uh, those of us lucky enough and, as I say, privileged enough, to be able to take the time to think about what is the kind of world that we would like to live in, what are the places we'd like to live in, work in, play in in the future. Um And that is a place that needs to be, as far as possible, resilient to to the various kind of threats coming down the road. And that includes climate change and it includes future pandemics and other things that are going to impact us all. And therefore, how do we create places that are resilient, that are healthy, that are connected to nature, that are democratic, that that, that bring people together uh, rather than divide them? Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I, think I agree with others that there are some very strong synergies and actually it has helped us to do what we're often not good at, which is to pause and really think about the future that we want to create and what we can do, uh, to help create that future.
0: Romy, one of the things I think that's interesting about Vestra is that you have a lot of rules that you, and guidelines that you follow to kind of, I don't know, self, um, enforce, uh, you know, net zero targets and, um, and and ethical rules such as you know the stance against any anti-social furniture, anti-skating measures, anti-rough um, sleeping measures. Mm-hmm. What is the importance of those ethics and rules in driving you know um, democracy and sustainable? I'm asking you a slightly different question because I realize that you're you you're, you do a slightly different job, but I think it's it's quite interesting to talk about you know the th- that idea of you know, do we need to place these targets and rules to get somewhere?
7: Mm, yeah, I'm Romy Rawlings. I'm commercial director at Vestra. Um, yes, in, in a in a Nordic way, we have rules, although they're not quite the same as the rules we might apply here, I guess. But uh, we have we have very simple um, systems in place and we the biggest rule is we don't compromise. So that's on sustainability and democratic design. Um, so one of the things we do, which you mentioned, Christine, is is refuse to adopt hostile design measures on on any of our furniture. So we could, but we choose not to put intermediate armrests on benches, for instance. Um, we don't apply anti scape measures, and it's very much a, a Scandinavian approach from Retten, which is the right to roam, um, which is embedded in all of their legislation in Norway, Sweden, Denmark scotland actually as well um that everybody should be able to enjoy public spaces in the in the way that they choose to and want to so it's it's very democratic from its basis i suppose um and we do encounter difficulties we're asked to do those sorts of things all the time and so we have to have a very strong approach where we just don't compromise um and we see Issues here that my colleagues in Norway have never heard of. They've never heard the term antisocial behaviour before we started working in London. Um, So that's been a learning curve over the last few years for, for all of us. And we know we can't change anything at policy level, but we have to take a stance and in our own small way, just not make things worse which we could very easily do. And we, and that's another of our philosophies, I suppose, in terms of sustainability. We, we want to change the world, um, save the world a little. And in terms of democratic design, we hope to change it a little. And in talking to people such as yourselves, in, in just putting the message out there all the time, we hope that uh, we will find like-minded people um, and, and do the same. Because I think you just have to stand up to these things all the time
0: i'm i'm really uh, interested in storytelling obviously i'm a storyteller being you know part of the media um, and we've talked about collectively we did kind of an exercise where we talked about the kind of spaces in which we would want to to spend time a public space in which we would want to spend time and would want to meet a friend and a stranger and they were all very different to approaches they shared some common similarities but they were um they were uh, they varied quite widely. If you place them on different extremes, from a green oasis uh, to a very busy um, uh, cent- and vibrant and noisy central space. So I'm going to ask you to kind of continue that storytelling exercise, and maybe tell me a story right now, we're, we're in the context of of changing demographics, changing financial models for many of your uh, developments towards perhaps rental. Um, you know, we, we've got. Uh, stories where, where people are saying they're questioning how they want to live in cities, whether they want to live in cities. Um, so can we tell a story uh, or can each of you maybe tell the story of what is a socially and um, environmental public space uh, in the climate emergency? You know, what is, tell me what that space is like. So I'm going to ping it to Neil first.
1: Um Slightly picking up a point Jonathan made, I mean, increasingly, they're, they're car-free, these spaces, at whatever scale. And, I mean, it's interesting, because when you talk about the democratisation of private space and all the stuff that, you know, Anna Minton did on ground control and this sort of concern about, you know, privatisation of public space, I mean, the single biggest privatisation of public space that there's been over the last century is turning them up, turning over streets and, and squares to, to, to cars, which are which are private spaces. Um, you know, and there's a whole kind of class dynamic as well as an environmental dynamic to that, and you've sort of seen it play out a little bit in some of the rebound that there's been on low traffic neighbourhoods, uh, where, where you know, where you essentially have, you know, a, I mean, you know, you, you, people are, you know, it, it's about who, it's about right to the street in the most simple, simple form, and. Um, you know, it, it's playing out differently in different, in different areas, clearly, and there have been some successes. I mean, one of the things we've noticed, I mean, we, we're doing a project in Milton Keynes, um, in one of the old um, parts of Milton Keynes called, called Wolverton, where we're trying to reinstate the sort of street grid uh, in a part of the town that was slightly sort of taken apart in the late 1970s under the theme of regeneration. And, you know, we sort of sometimes quite glibly talk about cars or kids, but actually in terms of land use, that's literally what it is. I mean, what we're trying to do there in a in a kind of victorian town is uh is really you know pushed down on private car ownership um there's great alternative public transport choices it's right in the middle of a really nice town center with loads of amenities um very walkable um you know provide a car club all the rest of it um and and by doing that we can create a couple of really lovely little car-free streets where kids can play right in the town center over these kind of you know kind of 14 meter front to front um completely pedestrianized streets um and and, it's, and it and it's a real struggle um to get people over that mindset people can understand the um the benefit of it and by people i kind of mean highways engineers but not you them um the um, um, but i think that in some ways it's kind of got you know it's got easier um during the covid period because what you're basically describing is what people is what people are doing um and so you know, I think that, I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to planning committee next month. We'll find out whether they whether they buy it or not. But, you know, I really hope that we'll be doing more of this stuff because, you know, when you go to most new uh, housing schemes, so you know, the ones that require two parking spaces per dwelling, 35 to 40% of your land use is going to be for car storage. I mean, that's completely batty in social terms and in environmental terms. And for me, I think the more we can bring the rig- rigour of kind of, you know, economic analysis as well as kind of environmental and social um, arguments to bear on the kind of insanity of turning over our public space to, to cars. The you know the better the better off we'll be.
0: Lida, you've got a beautiful scene of Bristol behind you where there have been a lot of conversations about cars and car-free and LTNs, um, so I'm going to, to ping that over to you and also ask you to help us imagine this future um, sustainable and uh, social uh, democratic public space.
3: Um, absolutely, I think for us, because we are solely focused on working in towns and city centres, where, you know, these are urban environments, uh, walkable, there are walkable places, you've got good transport connectivity, you've got good cycle, cycle connectivity. Why on earth do we need to bring in motor vehicles into that environment? What we're trying to do is you know, positively impact on the environment. And actually, so that's always our starting point. Um, so for example, very similar example, that Neil mentioned in Milton Keynes, we've got a big scheme in Milton Keynes um, and some of the battles that we 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 have to come crosses around um, the, you know, whilst the political direction is, you know, dec- we've declared a climate emergency, we fundamentally support environmental sustainability. However, the planning policy still wants you to provide car parking spaces. It just doesn't make any sense, especially when you're in a in a town, the city centre that's well connected, etc. We've got another scheme in, in Cambridge, minutes from the train station, and our approach is car free, completely car free. So our starting point actually is for is for car free schemes. Um, our middle ground is for um, car light schemes, but uh, we will only support um, clean cars, no diesel, no no nothing, no dirty cars on the site. So for me. My imagined place would be a place that is completely walkable. You know, we're using sustainable modes of transport throughout. And it's important, we're we're bringing wildlife back into this into that dense urban town centre. We're encouraging, you know, we're we're encouraging biodiversity. We're creating places. We're not just focusing on how do we, we've got to maximise the density on the site. Absolutely. We've got to maximise the, because, you know, our land is scarce. But at the same time, we've got to make sure that we are, you know, we are also making compromises so that we bring in, proper green space, proper trees, and we are improving air quality alongside uh, creating development. So for me, that is that, that's the priority.
0: Chris, I I think one of the things that happened through this pandemic was that we saw cars become this kind of escape. You didn't want to use them when you were in a city, but suddenly there was a pandemic and, you know, in the future, let's say there's a heat wave or a flood, you want to be able to jump in it and get away. So I think, uh, but that doesn't seem to be something that you want to be taking up 40% of your public space just for that occasional um, escape. Do we need to have, do we need to assure people that we that we can we'll get them out or is there some kind of psychological um new link created where a car is the thing that you needed uh to get away from covid
4: you probably asked the wrong person that question christine Um, i'm not a car owner uh i have a a car club car that sits outside the front door that um, me and all my neighbors use when we need it i'm going on holiday next week uh to suffolk um, and i'll i'll have a, a a shared car for the week, but that's really really unusual for me um but i I worry a bit uh about a couple of things in in this conversation one is that um you know we're all saying the same thing and and having just won the home of twenty thirty competition and then subsequently read the comments uh below the articles in the Daily Mail about it. Um, I think we 've all got to recognize the validity of um probably the majority uh, in this country who are people who want to have a, a car on the drive um and actually it 's it 's very alienating the um the kind of suburban uh layout where you know you come out you've I mean, maybe not even come out your front door you come out the door of your house into your garage and you jump in your car and you drive away and you don 't see your neighbors and, and so the other part of the conversation that's kind of worrying me is we're, we're thinking about this in terms of streets and squares and, and urbanity. And actually, you know, this is about people getting together and that can happen in virtual spaces as well as physical spaces. It can happen indoors as, as well as outdoors. Uh, and some of, the, some of the stuff that we've done that's been most powerful has been things like setting up WhatsApp groups when people move into a development um, so they start to get to know their neighbours. Uh, we set up community funds in each of our schemes so that we can fund, the, we call it the software, the, the, the things that people do rather than the spaces in which they do them. Um, and just one small example uh, of something we've done recently, working with Nationwide in, in Swindon in the Oakfield scheme. First thing that happened there was a community organiser was appointed and one of the first things that he did was he organised for the kids in the who'd been excluded from mainstream schooling who were in a school next to the site. Um, they cooked meals for the older people who lived um, in a, an old people's home just on the other side. And actually that stuff is much, much more powerful than designing the nicest square or the nicest street or what we do with cars.
0: Yemi, I'm going to bring you in here to respond to um, to some of the things that we've heard and, and ask you um, mm-hmm. to tell that story of, of what a sustainable and social socially positive, I guess, democratic future public space would be.
4: Yeah,
2: sure. I, I was doing a lot of smiling to, to what Chris has had, had to say because we found v- very similar things during um lockdown how we re-engaged with our residents including things like um all taking it in terms within the organization to give our residents a call once a week and that really was super super impactful um i think in the same way in regards to um sustainability and climate change um where we're starting now to push the narrative of reusing or refurbishing rather than demolishing and rebuilding where possible. I think rather than seeking to tackle um, issues of equitable public space um, solely from a perspective of starting again, you know, a, a blank slate because nothing works. I think we need to also be focusing on taking care of improving and, um, and reimagining the spaces that we already have. Um, I think with all the protests that we saw happen last year, we saw how public space was reappropriated to operate as gathering spaces. So it is possible (laughs) if we want it to be. Um, I think this needs to absolutely be done with meaningful input from the people that already use these spaces, but also people that might feel excluded um, from them. And that's important because I think it's... um, I don't think it's fair to say that bad design is the only cause or the major cause of our unequal cities. For me personally, I think I've had a bit of a revelation over the last year, which is that um, although architecture can be used as a tool to bring about change, it's not a change in itself. And that hit me (laughs) quite profoundly because, um, and it might be an absolute blur, of course not for, for most others, but I'm usually always so optimistic about these things in my outlook. And um, whilst as a professional in the construction industry, I'm always seeking to um, find solutions uh, to different issues such as climate change. And through architecture, the problem is much greater than architecture. Um, Cities are a manifestation of our social values. Um, Cities are unequal because our society is unequal. So I think we need to plug into some of the other issues at play. And my passion lies in doing that through the social and the economic.
0: Yeah, and I think you make a really strong point there. There's income inequality, there's, uh, there's, so, there's racism and sexism, there's systemic issues um, at play, and they do play out spatially, but that doesn't mean we can fix them spatially. So I think that's um, a point well made and an important one at that. Um, Paul, would you like to come in and talk a little bit about how things look from your uh, perspective?
6: Yeah, um, and, and and building on uh, both both of those last comments from Yemi and, and from Chris, uh, I mean, I, I agree with Chris that you know we do have to be really careful that you know the people on on this call are uh, and, and maybe some of the listeners are, are in a bit of a bubble, perhaps in terms of thinking about sustainability, thinking about high quality design, thinking about all the kind of the right things, as it were. And we shouldn't kid ourselves that that, that actually much of the world is in is in a different space, and you know. I'm I'm, I'm aware where I live of a a crazy road building scheme that's going ahead despite huge public opposition and is going to tear down some green space uh, that people really value. And it just seems the most perverse thing to be doing at at this time. Um, At the same time, um, I think there are some interesting things happening in our cities, and picking up perhaps on on some of those last comments, some of the most interesting work that I've been sort of exposed to the last couple of years is some work that we've been doing at Lendlease uh, around the Loneliness Lab. Um, we partnered with a social enterprise called Collectively to to explore loneliness on the back of a report that came back out. I think it was 2017 that said London was the loneliest capital in in Europe. Um, and given that we're in the business of kind of place making. Um, we thought well what can we do what's what's the role of, of design in this and and, and we, we spent unusually uh, actually for a big developer we spent a long time listening to people to to academics to, to to colleagues in local authorities people with lived experience of loneliness and we went through a sort of an innovation sprint and then we supported a number of projects to explore loneliness uh, in London uh, over the last couple of years and and what we've learned from that is that there is a whole range of things that you absolutely can do, to factor into the design of place if you like the hardware uh, and you can design for connectedness and for serendipitous interactions between people and so on but there's also an equally important software um, uh, element as, as as chris was saying i think this, this applies in the loneliness space as well and you know there's a project for example that, that um, some colleagues of mine kicked off you know uh, of their own bat down in, in in elephant and castle project called Elephant Says Hi. And it's all about connecting different communities and different groups, um, uh, You know, getting local businesses, local shops, local cafes uh, to, to, to get involved, creating safe spaces and places for people to, to meet and to support one another. And that's backed up with a website and, and using social media to connect people and you know, offer people advice, connections and help that they need uh, to forge connections. And, and, and I think that's, that's really powerful um, and, and a really important dimension. So I think the idea of, yes, we can design and create these places, but the ongoing kind of stewardship and, and the, the kind of the software, the programming that's required to enable and facilitate behaviours um, that can continue to support people, I, I think is, is, is really, really important.
0: Jonathan, are we in a bubble? Are you seeing what others are seeing around the table?
5: Um, yeah, I mean, the bubble is what I wrote down as Paul, Paul was talking. Then, um, and I think it's it's so important. We're aware of, of that bubble. I think I think where we um, have the opportunity to to use some of the understanding and knowledge within the bubble is is it goes back to how we design our our, our places. And I, as I said earlier. Um, looking at it at a city scale and working into that red line um, needs to be be the first thing we do when we we sit down to even imagine these places in the first instance. Um, How we connect to the communities, um, particularly the areas that we tend to work in, um, in cities, are usually the back end of the cities, um, and it usually has some challenging neighbourhoods surrounding it. We, wel- we welcome those neighbourhoods and we work very hard in looking at the connections of how we can integrate those those neighbourhoods back into the city centre usually. Usually they're being completely um, removed from it, usually by roads. Um, in Leeds we put in a bridge, a pedestrian bridge, um, as basically one of the first bits of infrastructure um, within, within our development. And we worked out that um for the children from those schools to access the the new um uh, high school in the city that bridge was going to mean that they crossed 11 less roads to get to school in the morning and i think it's it's that those types of um interventions particular in a design sense that um we need to be acknowledging and we need to be realizing the importance of those outside of the red line, um, I think the so I guess what we provide within that red line it starts with connections and infrastructure. And we 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 as all, all the things have been mentioned. I think um, creating spaces where people want to want to want to use, and I know that sounds crazy, um, but there are so many spaces and places um, in in our cities that people don't want to use. They're, they're either too hard or too soft. And we, we often get, we, we often see, um, yeah, spaces that are very hard and you must sit here or you must grow food here. Or you, this is this is a subsystem and this is where we manage water. Um, and this is where we play and this is where we stop. And I think there needs to be, um, much again at city scale, working back to I guess the bubble as I'll call it, um, but making sure that we 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 showcase the best examples. And I guess to to conclude is making sure we we're open to sharing. You know we are in yes yeah, using the the bubble analogy again. Um, we we often particularly in property, particularly in construction, there's. There's a nervousness to sharing. There's also a nervousness to to borrowing ideas. And I think um, we, we need to be open. Um, it is an emergency. It's, it, you know, the climate emergency is it is an emergency. The problem with it is, is that you can't, people don't see it on a day-to-day basis. And because you can't see it, the the urgency in the emergency is um, is often forgotten. I think. Sharing outside of that bubble is is going to be key to, to driving it with some pace.
0: We just have one and a half minutes left of your time. I want to take a moment to thank you all for sharing your your thoughts with me, and I want to um, I hope you'll continue to play with the sand. It's very therapeutic, so please do. Um, and finally, Romy, would you like to share a few reflections on some of the things you've heard?
7: Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you all for your time. It's it's been really interesting and. Very reassuring that there are clients, as we see you, out there. Um, you know who are who are completely aligned. I think with what we're trying to do. I, I think there are a few points around the bubbles. Um, I think there are a few points around the way we procure everything in our sector. I don't see what we're saying today, which is all really positive. Actually, filtering down. To the the sort of bottom feeders, as I like to uh, call ourselves <laughs> in the industry um, unfortunately i I think there's a real uh, problem around price and value uh, which which we struggle with a lot as a as the sort of supplier that we are um, so I think there are real positives, and I do see fantastic work being done, fantastic developments and improvements, but I just fear that there are a lot of glitches along the way and I spoke, for instance, to a local authority last week about um, uh, spending money on the high street to bring bring people back post-COVID and this welcome back fund and various uh, funding streams that are available to beautify areas, which basically seems to mean buying parklets and furniture and the like. So that's all great for us. But actually, one of the issues around that apparently is that at the end of the year or two-year term... The local authority cannot retain any assets uh, worth more than a thousand pounds. So you know the, it's a great thing and it's all positive. But you think, well, what what does that mean? You know, at the end of this period of time, is everything going to have to be thrown out? So the emphasis on buying something temporary. Um, I just fear that you know there there are a lot of things like that going on around that that unintended consequences of something do not support uh the climate emergency work that we're all doing and you know it 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 worries me a little bit that there is a bigger picture and if we if we do continue in these bubbles then we're we're in danger of uh, encountering more of that but yes thank you thank you for your time and all the positivity
0: this has been the developer podcast in association with vestra if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thedeveloperuk. And you can sign up to our free newsletter on our website at thedeveloper.live. Thanks very much.